This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Welcome to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. You know, today's message is entitled, For the Love of God. I know growing up, for many of us, we would hear terms like, For the love of God, would you clean your room? Or, for the love of God, I can't believe you did that. Or, for the love of God, would you get your act together? So oftentimes we heard it in more of a derogatory way. But today I want to talk about the true meaning of, for the love of God. The Bible tells us we are loving with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And that is because of what He's already done and who He is for us. You know, I remember growing up listening to John Lennon, who was the former singer-songwriter of the famous Beatles, and he, but he did capture the essence of the culture of the day, and even today, when he penned the words, whatever gets you through the night, it's all right. Whatever gets you through the night, it's all right. See, this attitude was also prevalent during Moses' time. Just as people then were inclined to seek a wide variety of other things to please them or other gods to seek health, favor, prosperity, people today are increasingly dependent on sources other than God Himself to meet their needs. Many build their lives on human methodologies and philosophies rather than seeking provision and direction from the Lord. See, God is not interested in competing for our hearts and devotion. He is looking for a people who will immediately trust Him with their every need. The foundation of all the commandments is the requirement that the affections and worship of His people be directed only towards God. He wants a monogamous relationship with us. How narrow and prejudiced this must have appeared to the Israelites of the day. All other religions of their day allowed for the worship of multiple gods, but Israel was to have no source but Jehovah. The first priority for anyone wishing to walk in covenant with Jehovah was to commit to complete loyalty to Him. A reasonable demand in light of the great deliverance Israel had experienced, but it was radically different from other religions of the time. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, demonstrates that relationship with God is only possible through faithfulness to Him as a covenant partner. No matter how much we desire to walk in the will of God and obey the commandments to have no other gods before me, we can be sure we will soon be challenged. Our present world and the systems around us provides plenty of subtle and powerful arguments why it's better to fall in with the way things are done than to be faithful to God. It's easy to excuse our lack of dependency upon God with sayings like, that's just the way it is, a man's got to feed his family, or everyone else is doing it. Sadly, many Christians seek the solace and counsel of friends or unsafe therapists before we bring the matter to God in prayer and fasting. When the test comes, will we honor the commandments to have no other gods before Him by trusting Him to meet our needs even when the situations look hopeless? Or will we seek our provisions from other sources? Three days after the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptian army, they faced their first test at a place called Morah, which means bitter, because the water was very salty and is suitable for consumption. The prospect of being stuck in the desert without water struck fear in their hearts, and they immediately began to complain to Moses. Instead of remembering the faithfulness of God, They complained because of the bitterness of their situation and asked Moses, What will we drink? They doubted God's faithfulness and looked to man, Moses, for solutions. Moses, however, knew only God had the answer, and he prayed. God graciously turned the bitter water sweet 
and met their needs. Moses honored God above all else by demonstrating his total dependency upon the Lord to provide their needs. The bitterness of humanity's struggle to meet basic needs of water, food, clothing, security, and so on provide a testing ground to determine whether or not we will place any other gods before him. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Matthew six twenty four and 25. Jesus knew that the pressures to meet life's basic needs could influence even sincere believers to place a God of riches and mammon before the true God. But that is a sin, isn't it? To place trust and security in any other source other than God is to have other gods before Him. This does not mean that God does not allow for financial planning, godly counseling, medical assistance, or any help that Christians may avail themselves of in life. It does mean, however, that we are not to rely on any of these remedies at the expense of our relationship with God Himself. The priority is to seek first the kingdom of God. God has required that His people give Him the highest respect by bringing their needs to Him and trusting Him to supply all their needs. God wants a people of faith and prayer, regardless of their needs. Faith is not simply a wish, a psychological trick, or a New Age philosophy of tapping into the power that is resident within all human beings. The prayer of faith results from an intimate relationship with God, a belief in His existence, and obedience to His commandments. When we refuse to seek satisfaction or protection from sources other than God, He graciously bestows supernatural provision, and trust grows and intimacy deepens. Learning to trust God in every aspect of daily life is the key to developing a true heart of love for God. This is accomplished through prayer and a heart attitude of humility. When we acknowledge our dependency upon God by asking Him to meet our needs, then we're giving God preeminence in our hearts. Sin, pride, and false humility can prevent believers from bringing their needs before God. And if we harbor known sin in our lives, our guilt, condemnation, and pride damage our relationship with Him. The good news is this, is that if we humbly confess and turn away from sin, God restores the relationship and brings healing to the situation in our lives. Praise and worship are also powerful, God-given weapons to help us express our love to Him. Jesus taught that the greatest commandment is this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. When we express our love through continual giving of thanks and praises to God, we're giving Him His rightful place in our hearts. This helps combat discouraging thoughts that cause us to doubt His love and go searching elsewhere to have our needs met. The mystery of obedience to the commandments comes to light in the heart given unreservedly in gratitude to God. This was and still is the great riddle of the Christian faith. The second, third, and fourth commandments God gave to the children of Israel also relate to putting God first in our lives and priorities. The second commandment says, You shall not make yourselves any idols. This is perhaps the most difficult commandment for Western society to relate to. Who's going to spend time fabricating an image to worship? 
But there are many New Age groups that believe objects like pyramids and crystals and other items possess powers that enhance the quality of life of their owners. While there may not be overt worship of these objects, the underlying motivation of seeking power, healing, wealth, and other gifts from inanimate items is surprisingly similar to the worship of idols in ancient times. Idols, large or small, in Old Testament times were viewed as having the power to ensure fertility, to guarantee financial blessing, and to provide counsel in decision-making. In short, they were viewed as possessing the ability to bring blessing in every area important to man. You see, by reducing their concept of God, they balled up His power in portable wooden or metal figures to be called on as needed. This desire for a controllable God is a primary spiritual root of idolatry. Exodus 32 contains one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. Moses had been away for several days receiving instructions from the Lord, and the people's faith began to fade. They demanded that Aaron make a golden calf to be their God and go before them. You see, God wasn't moving fast enough to suit them, so they decided to make themselves a God who would move when they wanted and rest when they wanted, instead of serving the God who delivered them from slavery and fed them in the desert, provided for them, they wanted a God they could control. See, God's judgment of the idolatry of His people was swift. God informed Moses that the people have corrupted themselves and are obstinate people. How were they obstinate? They refused to accept and worship God on His terms. They were unwilling to yield control of their own lives to Him. Instead, they preferred a God of their own making, one that they could worship as they wished, one they did not have to obey, but would obey them. This attitude still produces idol worship in the hearts of people, even Christians today. The unwillingness to recognize God's right to demand obedience is a seedbed from which all forms of idolatry grow. The instinct for self-preservation is another thing that influences a person to erect an idol in place of trusting God. Consider Jeroboam, a supervisor of forced labor during the reign of Solomon who was told by a prophet that God would make him king because Solomon practiced idolatry. When Solomon died, the word of the Lord came to pass, and Jeroboam became ruler over ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the king of the remaining two tribes. Even though Jeroboam was king over ten of the tribes because God had given him that place of authority, he was afraid of losing the kingdom when his citizens went to worship God. Why was this a problem for Jeroboam? Because Jerusalem, the place designated for sacrifice and offerings to God, was located in Rehoboam's territory. He feared his people would reunite under Rehoboam if they went to Jerusalem to worship God. So Jeroboam created a religious system in his own kingdom so that his people would not have to go to Jerusalem. Prophets of the Lord referred to the sin of Jeroboam for years to come and urged the people in Israel to tear down the false places of worship and return to true worship. But they refused to listen, and ultimately they were carried away as slaves by the Assyrians. You see, Jeroboam's instinct for self-preservation and fear that man would take away what God had given him drove him to idolatrous practices and brought about the ruin of many. His lack of faith in the goodness of God caused him to betray the very God who had blessed him. The Apostle Paul tells of two exchanges that men make in order to become accomplished idolaters. Romans 1, verse 22 and 23 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, Romans 1.25. Paul says that they exchanged the truth for a lie and began to rely on false and futile speculations. In short, they rejected the knowledge of truth and substituted a human philosophy for living. The Scripture calls this a darkening of the heart that comes through the profession of a false wisdom, which really is folly because it rejects the revealed truth concerning God. The first step toward idolatry is the rejection of truth. Once the truth concerning God has been dismissed, it is a simple matter to replace it with a truth that is more suitable to our desires. Paul explains in Romans 1 verse 28 that the consequences of rejecting the truth concerning God will result in being given over to a reprobate or depraved mind. You see, after a person serves a God of his own making, he rapidly delves into the very depths of sin. Jealousies, hatred, envies, murders, and bitterness all spring from a depraved mind. Once the boundaries of truth are removed from a person's life, he opens himself up to all sorts of perversions. With so many ideas and philosophies circulating concerning the nature of God, it is important to discern what is true and what is not. To have proper understanding of God, we must read His Word, for it washes our minds. All that the Bible contains concerning the work and character of God is absolutely trustworthy. Through meditating on obeying scriptures, we begin to grow in the knowledge of God and worship Him according to the truth. But if we reject all or part of this source of revelation, we walk in the error of exchanging the truth for a lie and open ourselves up to idolatrous practices, sin, and even perversions. You see, the wisdom of God lies in believing His message. Heaven and earth shall pass away with all the erroneous ideologies of men, but God's wisdom will remain forever. The third commandment says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Few subjects in Scripture receives as much attention as the name of the Lord. The name Yahweh, for example, occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament and is generally considered to be the name God gave Himself for Israel when He covenanted with them to be His special people. The respect and honor given to the name Yahweh in ancient times can hardly be overestimated. In fact, it was considered so sacred and so holy that even uttering it aloud was blasphemy. Many people commonly think that to use the Lord's name in vain is swearing or cursing or cussing. Although this may seem like a little thing, it dishonors the name of the Lord by treating lightly that which is holy. Another way people use God's name in vain is profaning or vulgarizing it. This occurs when a person does not esteem the purposes and plans of the Lord as precious, like Esau, who sold his God-given birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. When we profane or make vain the name of God, we take that which is holy and reduce it to a level of mere man. Even my own personal testimony is filled with profaning the name of God and having His grace extended to me again and again and again. I remember as a little boy... The Lord miraculously healed my eyes and prevented me from going blind. While in college, I was with friends who were drinking and driving and doing drugs, and, and our car struck a telephone pole, and I was thrown through the windshield. And again, God's grace protected me on that occasion. A few years later, I nearly overdosed on PCP. On another occasion, I was held up at gunpoint. Each time, I cried out to God for help, and He granted me His abounding grace. Time after time, I returned to the same sinful lifestyle. 
But finally, after the death of a friend of mine, I fell on my knees in my office, and with my hands upraised to God, I cried out to God, Lord, I just can't take this anymore. But I remember the Lord spoke clearly into my heart, don't call me Lord, Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. And I answered in my own words, said, but Lord, I know that you're my Savior. I know that you're the Lord, and, and I, you're filled with love and kindness, and I know I'm saved because I believe you are the Son of God. And this deep, deep conviction in my heart, I knew that I was being a hypocrite. I was wanting the grace of God to suit me, but I was really still the God of my own life. And here's what the Lord spoke deeply into my heart. Doug, even the demons in hell believe and know who I am. What makes you any different? At that moment, the fear of God filled the room, and I realized I had no promise of my future unless I surrendered to the complete lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. I could no longer be the Lord of my own life. I needed Him to be the Lord of my life. As much as the third commandment is a stern warning against this wrong attitude of of being our own gods, it also implies that there is a proper way to approach the Lord. The day in my office on my knees, I knew I had coasted on grace far too long and realized that I personally could no longer simply name the name of the Lord and expect to do what I wanted to do. On my knees in my office, I prayed, Jesus, if you could do anything with someone like me who's brought shame to your name and broken your heart, I'll make myself available to you. Instantly, something inside of me changed my heart, my attitude, the authenticity of my crying out to God, and His grace was poured out to me. And I sensed the presence of God and the peace of God in the midst of what initially started is this overwhelming sense of separation from God because of my own choices and my own sin. By respecting Him in His name, the door to the avenues of blessing and peace opened for me and also will open for all those who love and honor Him. You see, God will not allow His own name to be used for covetous Christians to appease the lusts of their hearts and flesh. What God sanctions and even desires is for those who have a relationship with Him as a Father to call upon His name in humility and trust. Oh, the abounding, amazing, and great grace of God. But misuse of the Lord's name includes attributing divine authority and origination to the thoughts and ideas of men. The prophets in Jeremiah's time were speaking messages to the people and proclaiming they were God-given when in reality they were the imaginations of their own hearts. Many in Christian circles today casually assert such things as, God told me to tell you, or, Thus saith the Lord. The Bible teaches that such statements should never be made in a cavalier or careless manner. God seriously regards the integrity and sanctity of His name, and He will jealously watch over it to protect it from slander and misuse. Does God speak? Yes. Can God use us to speak into someone's life? Yes. But again, we have to be careful not to misrepresent what God is saying by being cavalier or thinking that it's us giving that word. It really is the Lord giving us scripture, inclinations, discernment, and sensitivity to speak into people's lives. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he instructed them to say, Hallowed be thy name. See, hallowed means sacred or revered. And the third commandment focuses on the continual observance of a proper attitude towards the name of God who is to be revered. The word hypocrite comes from an ancient Greek word once used to describe a stage actor, a pretender. One who uses the name of the Lord without having a true relationship with Him is a hypocrite or a pretender, because authority to use His name is given only to those in covenant relationship with the Father by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus recognizes us as belonging to Him, 
And when His Spirit dwells in our hearts, then we have the authority of His name to pull down strongholds, cast out demons, lay hands on the sick, etc., and preach the gospel with power. God trusts Christians to be caretakers of His message and His name on the earth, a privilege given only to those who are in covenant relationship with Him. The Bible tells us that Jesus humbled Himself and suffered death on the cross for all mankind. Because He was willing to do this, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name above all names. Jesus, before which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, His name is great, and we honor Him by not taking lightly the magnitude of His sacrifice on our behalf. As His name is holy, so the people who are given authority to bear His name should also be holy. Scripture says, Be ye holy, even as He is holy. We also honor His name when we refuse to use it in a way that denies Him as the source and provider of blessings in our lives. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In the story of creation in Genesis 2, it says, And by the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2. God intended from the very beginning that the Sabbath day be set apart as a special day away from the stress of everyday life. He longed for His people to receive spiritual renewal through individual and corporate worship. Unfortunately, many people replace recreation for spiritual rest, which only increases the stress levels of an already overworked and spiritually bankrupt people. True rest is not possible through any means other than the worship and enjoyment of God. Today, a large segment of society, Christians included, falsely believe that recreation equals rest, But many leisure activities add more stress to already high stress levels in our culture. Not properly recognizing the principles of Sabbath rest often increases both financial and relational pressures on families. So, instead of returning from time off, refreshed and renewed, they re-enter the next week weary and edgy. The Hebrew word translated Sabbath is Shabbat. comes from a word group meaning to cease or rest. And this commandment to the Israelites meant ceasing from all activity and labor. The expectation was for everyone to refrain from their customary labors and activities and turn their concentration to God, to devote time to worship Him. When we do, we are infused with strength and spiritual vitality from His supernatural blessings. God desires to rejuvenate us as we experience His presence through worship and meditation and fellowship with Him. A true Sabbath rest isn't just attending a weekly church service. It's a time for us to really seek the presence of God and open ourselves up to understanding His nature and character and love for us. As we cast our cares upon Him in an attitude of faith and worship, He offers relief from the anxiety and stress of this world. We can embrace Him as our loving Father and trust Him to meet us at every point of our need. See, true rest comes only through relational intimacy with God during seasons of worship and not through recreation and work and striving that the world offers. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses calls special attention to the significance of the Sabbath day when addressing the nation. This was the day the Israelites honored the Lord for delivering them from their captors, the Egyptians. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you, to observe the Sabbath day or the rest. 
The New Testament teaches that we are all slaves of sin, a violent and brutal master. After holding people in bondage throughout their lives, sin ultimately rewards them with eternal separation from God, spiritual death. But born-again Christians now worship God as a remembrance of when we experience deliverance and forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death and resurrection. The key to understanding the present and future ramifications of the Sabbath and all holy days can be found in the expression, shadow of things to come. All these things point to the ultimate rest we experience through the kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God established the spiritual principle of Sabbath rest, He was not only giving His people a means to experience physical and spiritual renewal, but He was pointing to the time of the ultimate Sabbath rest, the kingdom of heaven established on earth. This is an eternal rest Sabbath, ultimately awaiting those who die in the Lord. But what does that mean? And how can we be assured of this eternal rest? Strangely enough, both the earthly Sabbath rest and future Sabbath rest are appropriated through obedience to God, which produces genuine faith. Hebrews 4 tells us that faith is the means by which God's people enter into rest. It says in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, For we who have believed entered into that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In this life, as well as in the life to come, rest revolves around a faith response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scripture says to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. If we really believe these promises, our faith enables us to experience release from stress and anxiety that torments us. As we obey by releasing our cares to him, we experience Sabbath rest in our lives through our faith in His promises. If we regularly practice the principles of worship, meditation in the Word, and communion with fellow believers, then we are fulfilling the spirit of the fourth commandment and increasing our capacity to experience the spiritual rest which God promises to believers, and of drawing into a more intimate, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we will have no other gods before Him. I know I've given you a lot to chew on, So I'll close with the encouragement to choose today to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me pray for you. Father, our desire is to walk in obedience to your command, to have no other gods before you. Please forgive us for the times that we have placed others before you, and teach us to walk in your love and trust in you to meet every need. I pray, Lord, that you would give us such a love for you that we will consider how each and every action impacts our relationship with you and affects others. May we be found faithful in your sight. Lord, would you give us a renewed revelation of yourself and help us to see, Lord, who you really are in our lives, recognizing that you are the Lord and, Lord, that you have love for us, you have poured out your grace upon us. Lord, we desire to know you more and more. We want to have true communion with you, Lord, that we might have the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Lord, I thank you that simple obedience is the highest form of worship. So, Lord, today... We simply obey by saying, Lord, we surrender to your Lordship. We thank you, Lord, that you would do a work in us so you can do a work through us. Help us to love you and help us to love people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we sure would love to hear from you. If you have any prayer needs or prayer requests, you can email us at prayer at somebodycares.org or you can email us any comments at somebodycares at somebodycares.org. And for more information about our ministries, you can go to www.somebodycares.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org 
or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.